little yard, and the more observant made note of another absence. The Dowager Queen was nowhere to be seen, though, as Jehera's grandmother, Alicent Hightower, ought to have been present. As he was still but ten years of age, the new king's first act was to name the men who would protect and defend him, and rule for him until he came of age. Sir Willis Fell, the sole survivor of the King's Guard of King Viserys's time, was made Lord Commander of the White Swords, with Sir Marston Waters as his second. As both men were considered greens, the remaining places in the King's Guard were filled with blacks. Sir Tyland Lannister, recently returned from Mere, was made Hand of the King, whilst Lord Leowin Corbray was named Protector of the Realm. The former had been a green, the latter a black. Over them would sit a council of regency, consisting of Lady Jane Arran of the Vale, Lord Corlys Valerian of Driftmark, Lord Roland Westerling of the Crag, Lord Royce Caron of Nightsong, Lord Manfred Mouton of Maidenpool, Sir Torren Manderley of White Harbour, and Grand Maester Munken, newly chosen by the Citadel to take up Grand Maester Orwell's chain of office. It is reliably reported that Lord Cregan Stark was also offered a place amongst the regents, but refused. Conspicuous omissions from the council included Kermit Tully, Unwin Peake, Sabatha Frey, Thaddeus Rowan, Lionel Hightower, Joanna Lannister, and Benjicock Blackwood. But Septon Eustace insists that only Lord Peake was truly angered by his exclusion. This was a council of which Septon Eustace heartily approved. Six strong men and one wise woman— Seven to rule us here on earth, as the seven above rule all men from their heaven. Mushroom was less impressed. Seven regents were six too many, he said. Pity our poor king. Despite the fool's misgivings, most observers seemed to feel that the reign of King Aegon III had begun on a hopeful note. The remainder of the year 131 AC was a time of departures as the great lords of Westeros took their leaves of King's Landing one by one to return to their own seats of power. Amongst the first to flee were the three widows, after bidding tearful farewells to the daughters, son, siblings, and cousins who would remain to serve the new king and queen as companions and hostages. Cregan Stark led his much-diminished host north along the King's Road within a fortnight of the coronation. Three days later, Lord Blackwood and Lady Alessand set out for Raventree, with a thousand of Stark's northerners as a tail. Lord Lionel and his paramour, the Lady Sam, rode south for Old Town with their high towers, whilst Lords Rowan, Beesbury, Costain, Tarley, and Redwine joined to escort his High Holiness to the same destination. Lord Kermit, Tarley, and his knights returned to Riverrun, whilst his brother Sir Oscar set sail with his stormbreakers for Tyrosh and the disputed lands. There was one who did not depart as planned, however. Sir Medric Manderley had agreed to take the men bound for the wall as far as White Harbour on his galley, North Star. From there they were to proceed overland to Castle Black. On the morning the North Star was to sail, however, a count of the condemned revealed a man was missing. Grand Maester Orwell, it seemed, had experienced a change of heart as regarded taking the Black. Bribing one of his guards to loose his fetters, he had changed into a beggar's rags and disappeared into the stews of the city. Unwilling to linger any longer, Sir Medric sentenced the guard who had freed Orwell to take his place, and the North Star sought the sea. 
By the end of 131 AC, Septon Eustace tells us, a grey calm had settled over King's Landing and the Crownlands. Aegon III sat the Iron Throne when required, but elsewise was little seen. The task of defending the realm fell to the Lord Protector, Leo in Corbray. The day-to-day tedium of rule to the blind hand, Tyland Lannister. Once as tall and golden-haired and dashing as his twin, the late Lord Jason, Sir Tyland had been left so disfigured by the Queen's torturers that ladies new to court had been known to faint at the sight of him. To spare them, the hand took to wearing a silken hood over his head on formal occasions. This was perhaps a misjudgment, for it gave Sir Tyland a sinister aspect, and before very long the small folk of King's Landing began to whisper tales of the malign, masked sorcerer in the Red Keep. Sir Tyland's wits remained sharp, however. He might have been expected to have emerged from his torments a bitter man intent upon revenge, but this proved far from true. Instead, the hand claimed a curious failure of memory, insisting that he could not recall who had been black and who green, whilst demonstrating a dogged loyalty to the son of the very queen who had sent him to the torturers. Very quickly, Sir Tyland achieved an unspoken dominance over Leo in Corbray, of whom Mushroom says, He was thick of neck and thick of wit, but never have I known a man to fart so loudly. By law, both the Hand and the Lord Protector were subject to the authority of the Council of Regents, but as the days passed and the moon turned, and turned again, the Regents convened less and less often, whilst the tireless, blind, hooded Tyland Lannister gathered more and more power to himself. The challenges he faced were daunting, for winter had descended upon Westeros and would endure for four long years, a winter as cold and bleak as any in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. The kingdom's trade had collapsed during the dance as well. Countless villages, towns, and castles had been slighted or destroyed, and bands of outlaws and broken men haunted the roads and woods. A more immediate problem was posed by the Dowager Queen, who refused to reconcile herself to the new king. The murder of the last of her sons had turned Alicent's heart into a stone. None of the regents wished to see her put to death, some from compassion, others for fear that such an execution might rekindle the flames of war. Yet she could not be allowed to take part in the life of the court as before. She was too apt to rain down curses on the king, or snatch a dagger from some unwary guardsman. Alison could not even be trusted in the company of the little queen. When last allowed to share a meal with her grace, she had told Jehera to cut her husband's throat whilst he was sleeping, which set the child to screaming. Sir Tyland felt he had no choice but to confine the Queen Dowager to her own apartments in Magor's Holdfast. A gentle imprisonment, but imprisonment nonetheless. The Hand then set out to restore the kingdom's trade and begin the process of rebuilding. Great lords and small folk alike were pleased when he abolished the taxes enacted by Queen Rhaenyra and Lord Keltigar. With the crown's gold once more secure, Sir Tyland set aside a million golden dragons as loans for lords whose holdings had been destroyed during the dance. Though many availed themselves of this coin, the loans did bring about a rift between the Iron Throne and the Iron Bank of Bravos. He also ordered the construction of three huge fortified granaries in King's Landing, Lannisport, and Gulltown, and the purchase of sufficient grain to fill them. The latter decree drove up the price of grain sharply, 
which pleased those towns and lords with wheat and corn and barley to sell, but angered the proprietors of inns and pot-shops and the poor and hungry in general. Though he called a halt to work on the gargantuan statues of Prince Amund and Prince Darren that had been commissioned by Aegon II, not before the heads of the two princes had been carved, the hand set hundreds of stonemasons, carpenters, and builders to work on the repair and restoration of the dragon pit. The gates of King's Landing were strengthened at his command, so they might better be able to resist attacks from within the city walls as well as without. The Hand also announced the Crown's funding for the construction of fifty new war galleys. When questioned, he told the regents that this was meant to provide work for the shipyards and defend the city from the fleets of the Triarchy. But many suspected Sir Tylan's real purpose was to lessen the Crown's dependence on House Valerian of Driftmark. The Hand might also have been mindful of the continuing war in the West when he set the shipwrights to work. Whilst the ascent of Aegon III did mark an end to the worst of the carnage of the Dance of the Dragons, it is not wholly correct to assert that the young king's coronation brought peace to the Seven Kingdoms. Fighting continued in the West through the first three years of the boy king's reign, as Lady Joanna of Casterly Rock continued to resist the depredations of Dalton Greyjoy's Ironborn in the name of her son, young Lord Lorien. The details of their war lie outside our purpose here. For those who would know more, the relevant chapters of Archmaester Mancaster's Sea Demons, A History of the Children of the Drowned God of the Isles are especially good. Suffice it to say that whilst the Red Kraken had proved a valuable ally to the Blacks during the dance, the coming of peace demonstrated that the Iron Men had no more regard for them than for the Greens. Though he stopped short of openly declaring himself King of the Iron Isles, Dalton Greyjoy paid little heed to any of the edicts coming from the Iron Throne during these years, mayhaps because the King was a boy and his hand a Lannister. When commanded to cease his raiding, Greyjoy continued as before. Told to restore the women his Iron Men had carried off, he replied that, only the drowned god may sunder the bond between a man and his salt wives. Instructed to return Fair Isle to its former lords, he replied, Should they come rising back up from beneath the sea, we shall gladly give them back what once was theirs. When Joanna Lannister attempted to build a new fleet of warships to take the battle to the Iron Men, the Red Kraken descended on her shipyards and put them to the torch, and made off with another hundred women in the nonce. The Hand sent an angry reproach, to which Lord Dalton replied, The women of the West prefer men of iron to cowardly lions, it would seem, for they jump into the sea and plead with us to take them. Across Westeros, the winds of war were blowing up the narrow sea as well. The murder of Shirako Lohar of Lys, the admiral who had presided over the Triarchy's disaster in the gullet, proved to be the spark that engulfed the three daughters in flames, fanning the smouldering rivalries of Tyrosh, Lys, and Mir into open war. It is now commonly accepted that Shirako's death was a personal matter. The arrogant admiral was slain by one of his rivals for the favor of a courtesan known as the Black Swan. At the time, however, his death was seen as a political killing, and the Mirish were suspected. When Lys and Mir went to war, Tyrosh seized the opportunity to assert its dominion over the Stepstones. To press that claim, the Archon of Tyrosh called up Recalio Rindun, the flamboyant Captain-General who had once commanded the Triarchy's forces against Daemon Targaryen. 
Racalio overran the islands in a trice and put the reigning king of the narrow sea to death, only to decide to claim his crown for himself, betraying the Archon and his native city. The confused, four-sided war that followed had the effect of closing the southern end of the narrow sea to trade, cutting off King's Landing, Duskendale, Maidenpool and Gulltown from commerce with the east. Pentos, Bravos, and Loroth were similarly affected and sent envoys to King's Landing in hopes of bringing the Iron Throne into a grand alliance against Dracalio and the quarrelsome daughters. Sir Tyland entertained them lavishly, but refused their offer. It would be a grave mistake for Westeros to become embroiled in the endless quarrels of the free cities, he told the Council of Regents. That fateful year, 131 AC, came to a close with a seas aflame both east and west of the Seven Kingdoms, and blizzards descending on Winterfell in the north. Nor was the mood in King's Landing a happy one. The small folk of the city had already begun to grow disenchanted with their boy king and little queen, neither of whom had been seen since the wedding, and whispers about the hooded hand were spreading. Though the reborn shepherd had been taken by the gold cloaks and relieved of his tongue, others had risen in his place to preach of how the king's hand practiced the forbidden arts, drank baby's blood, and was besides a monster who hides his twisted face from gods and men. Within the walls of the Red Keep there were whispers about the king and queen as well. The royal marriage was troubled from the first. Both bride and groom were children. Aegon Third was now eleven, Jehera only eight. Once wed, they had very little contact with one another save on formal occasions, and even that was rare as the little queen was loath to leave her chambers. Both of them are broken, Grand Maester Munken declared in a letter to the conclave. The girl had witnessed the murder of her twin brother at the hands of blood and cheese. The king had lost all four of his own brothers, then watched his uncle feed his mother to a dragon. These are not normal children, Munken wrote. They have no joy in them. They neither laugh nor play. The girl wets her bed at night and weeps inconsolably when she is corrected. Her own ladies say that she is eight going on four. Had I not laced her milk with sweet sleep before the wedding, I am convinced the child would have collapsed during the ceremony. As for the king, the new Grand Maester went on, Aegon shows little interest in his wife or any other girl. He does not ride or hunt or joust, but neither does he enjoy sedentary pursuits such as reading, dancing, or singing. Though his wits seem sound enough, he never initiates a conversation, and when spoken to, his answers are so curt one would think the very act of talking was painful to him. He has no friends save for the bastard boy, Gaiman Palehair, and seldom sleeps through the night. During the hour of the wolf he can oft be found standing by a window, gazing up at the stars, but when I presented him with Archmaester Lyman's Kingdoms of the Sky, he showed no interest. Aegon seldom smiles and never laughs, but neither does he display any outward signs of anger or fear, save in regards to dragons, the very mention of which sends him into a rare rage. Orwile was wont to call his grace calm and self-possessed, I say the boy is dead inside. He walks the halls of the Red Keep like a ghost. Brothers, I must be frank. I fear for our king and for the kingdom. His fears, alas, would prove to be well-founded. 
as bad as 131 A.C. had been, the next two years would be much worse. It began on an ominous note when the former Grand Maester Orwile was discovered in a brothel called Mother's, near the lower end of the Street of Silk. Shorn of his hair and beard and chain of office and going by the name Old Will, he had earned his bread by sweeping, scrubbing, inspecting patrons of the house for pops, and mixing moon tea and potions of tansy and pennyroyal for mother's daughters to rid themselves of unwanted children. No one paid old Will any mind until he took it upon himself to teach some of mother's younger girls to read. One of his pupils demonstrated her new skill to a sergeant in the gold cloaks, who grew suspicious and led the old man in for questioning. The truth soon emerged. The penalty for deserting the night's watch is death. Though Orwell had not yet sworn vows, most still considered him an oath-breaker. There was no question of allowing him to take ship for the war. The original sentence of death that Lord Stark had pronounced on him must apply, the regents agreed. Sir Tyland did not deny this, though he pointed out that the office of King's Justice had yet to be filled, and as a blind man he was a poor choice to swing the sword himself. Using that for his pretext, the hand instead confined Orwell to a tower cell, large, airy, and far too comfortable, some charged, until such time as a suitable headsman can be found. Neither Septon Eustace nor Mushroom were deceived. Orwell had served with Sir Tyland on Aegon II's Green Councils, and plainly old friendship and the memory of all they had endured played some part in the hand's decision. The former Grand Maester was even provided with quill, ink, and parchment, so that he might continue his confessions. And so he did for the best part of two years, setting down the lengthy history of the reigns of Viserys I and Aegon II that would later prove to be such an invaluable source for his successors, true telling. Less than a fortnight later, reports reached King's Landing of bands of wildlings from the Mountains of the Moon descending upon the Vale of Arran in large numbers to raid and plunder, and Lady Jane Arran left the court and sailed for Galtown to see to the defence of her own lands and people. There were ominous stirrings along the Dornish marches, too, for Dawn had a new ruler in the person of Aleandra Martell, a brazen girl of ten and seven, who fancied herself the new Nymeria, and had every young lord south of the Red Mountains vying for her affections. To deal with their incursions, Lord Carron took his leave of King's Landing as well, hastening back to night song in the Dornish marches. Thus the seven regents became five. The most influential of those was plainly the Sea Snake, whose wealth, experience, and alliances made him the first amongst equals. Even more tellingly, he seemed the only man young King was willing to trust. For all these reasons— the realm suffered a terrible blow on the sixth day of the third moon of 132 A.C., when Corlys Valerian, Lord of the Tides, collapsed whilst ascending the serpentine steps in the Red Keep of King's Landing. By the time Grand Maester Munken came rushing to his aid, the sea snake was dead. Seventy-nine years of age, he had served four kings and a queen, sailed to the ends of the earth, raised House Valerian to unprecedented levels of wealth and power, married a princess who might have been a queen, fathered dragon riders, built towns and fleets, proved his valour in times of war and his wisdom in times of peace. 
the seven kingdoms would never see his like again. With his passing, a great hole was torn in the tattered fabric of the seven kingdoms. Lord Corlys lay in state beneath the Iron Throne for seven days. Afterward, his remains were carried back to Driftmark aboard the Mermaid's Kiss, captained by Marilda of Hull with her son, Alan. There, the battered hull of the ancient Sea Snake was floated once again and towed out into the deep waters east of Dragonstone, where Corlys Valerian was buried at sea aboard the very ship that had given him his name. It was said afterward that as the hull went down, the cannibal swept overhead, his great black wings spread in a last salute. A moving touch, but most likely a later embroidery. From all we know of the cannibal, he would have been more apt to eat the corpse than salute it. The base-born Alan of Hull, now Alan Valerian, had been the sea snake's chosen heir, but his succession was not uncontested. It will be recalled that in the time of King Viserys, a nephew of Lord Corlys, Sir Vaymond Valerian, had put himself forward as the true heir to Driftmark. This rebellion cost him his head, but he left a wife and sons behind. Sir Vaymond had been the son of the elder of the Sea Snake's brothers. Five other nephews, side by another brother, had claims as well. When they took their case before the sick and failing Viserys, they made the grievous mistake of questioning the legitimacy of his daughter's children. Viserys had their tongues removed for this insolence, though he let them keep their heads. Three of the silent five had died during the dance, fighting for Aegon II against Rhaenyra. But two survived, together with Sir Vaymond's sons, and all came forward now, insisting that they had more right to drift Mark than this bastard of Hull whose mother was a mouse. Sir Vaymond's sons Damien and Darren took their claim to the council in King's Landing. When the Hand and the Regents ruled against them, they wisely chose to accept the decision and be reconciled with Lord Allen, who rewarded them with lands on Driftmark on the condition that they contribute ships to his fleet. Their silent cousins chose a different course. Lacking tongues with which to make their appeal, they preferred to argue with swords, says Mushroom. However, the plot to murder their young lord went awry when the guards at Castle Driftmark proved loyal to the Sea Snake's memory and his chosen heir. Sir Malentine was slain during the attempt, his brother captured. Condemned to death, Sir Rogar saved his head by taking the black. Alan Valerian, the bastard born of Mouse, was formally installed as Lord of the Tides and Master of Driftmark, whereupon he set out for King's Landing to claim the Sea Snake's place amongst the regents. Even as a boy, Lord Alan never lacked for boldness. The Hand thanked him and sent him home. Understandably, as Alan Valerian was but sixteen in 132 AC. Lord Corliss's seat upon the Council of Regents had already been offered to an older and more seasoned man, Unwin Peak, Lord of Starpike, Lord of Dunstanbury, Lord of Whitegrove. Sir Tyland had a far more pressing concern in 132 AC, the matter of succession. Whilst Lord Corliss had been old and frail, his sudden death had nonetheless served as a grim reminder that any man could die at any time, even seemingly healthy young kings like Aegon III. War, illness, accident. There were so many ways to die. And if the king should perish, who then would follow him? 
If he dies without an heir, we shall dance again, however much we may mislike the music, Lord Manfred Mouton warned his fellow regents. Queen Jehera's claim was as strong as the king's, and stronger in the minds of some, but the notion of placing that sweet, simple, frightened child on the Iron Throne was madness, all agreed. King Aegon himself, when asked, put forward his cupbearer, Gaiman Palehair, reminding the regents that the boy had been a king before. That was impossible as well. In truth, there were only two claimants the realm was like to accept, the king's half-sisters, Bela and Rhaena Targaryen, Prince Daemon's twin daughters by his first wife, Lady Lena Valerian. The girls were now sixteen years of age, tall and slim and silver-haired, very much the darlings of the city. King Aegon seldom set foot outside the Red Keep after his coronation, and his little queen never left her own apartments, so for most of the past year it had been Reyna or Bela riding out to hunt or hawk, giving alms to the poor, receiving envoys and visiting lords with the king's hand, serving as hostess at feasts, of which there were few, masks and balls, of which there had been none as yet. The twins were the only Targaryens the people ever saw. Yet even here the council encountered difficulty and division. When Leowyn Corbray said, Lady Rhaena would make a splendid queen, Sir Tyland pointed out that Bela had been the first from her mother's womb. Bela is too wild, countered Sir Torren Manderley. How can she rule the realm when she cannot rule herself? Sir Willis fell agreed. It must be Rhaena. She has a dragon. Her sister does not. When Lord Corbray answered, Bela flew a dragon, Rayna only has the hatchling, Roland Westerling replied, Bela's dragon brought down our late king. There are many in the realm who will not have forgotten that. Crown her, and we will rip all the old wounds open once again. Yet it was Grand Maester Munken who put an end to the debate when he said, My lords, it makes no matter. They are both girls. Have we learned so little from the slaughter? We must abide by primogeniture, as the great council ruled in 101. The male claim comes before the female. Yet when Sir Tyland said, And who is this male claimant, my lord? We seem to have killed them all. Munken had no answer but to say he would research the issue. Thus the crucial question of succession remained unsettled. This uncertainty did little to spare the twins from the fawning attentions of all the suitors, confidants, companions, and similar flatterers eager to befriend the king's presumed heirs, though the sisters reacted to these lick-spittles in vastly different ways. Where Rayna delighted in being the centre of court life, Bela bristled at praise, and seemed to take pleasure in mocking and tormenting the suitors who fluttered around her like moths. As young girls, the twins had been inseparable and impossible to tell apart, but once parted, their experiences had shaped them in very different ways. In the Vale, Rayna had enjoyed a life of comfort and privilege as Lady Jane's ward. Maids had brushed her hair and drawn her baths, whilst singers composed odes to her beauty and knights jousted for her favour. The same was true at King's Landing, where dozens of gallant young lords competed for her smiles, Artists begged leave to draw or paint her, and the city's finest dressmakers sought the honour of making her gowns. And everywhere that Rayna went came Morning, her young dragon, oft as not, coiled about her shoulders like a stole. 
Baylor's time on Dragonstone had been more troubled, ending with fire and blood. By the time she came to court, she was as wild and willful a young woman as any in the realm. Arena was slender and graceful. Baylor was lean and quick. Arena loved to dance. Baylor lived to ride and to fly, though that had been taken from her when her dragon died. She kept her silver hair cropped as short as a boy's, so it would not whip about her face when she was riding. Time and time again she would escape her ladies to seek adventure in the streets. She took part in drunken horse races along the street of the sisters, engaged in moonlight swims across the Blackwater Rush, whose powerful currents had been known to drown many a strong swimmer. Drank with the gold cloaks in their barracks, wagered coin and sometimes clothing in the rat pits of Flea Bottom. Once she vanished for three days and refused to say where she had been when she returned. Even more gravely, Bela had a taste for unsuitable companions. Like stray dogs, she brought them home with her to the Red Keep, insisting that they be given positions in the castle or be made part of her own retinue. These pets of hers included a comely young juggler, a blacksmith's apprentice whose muscles she admired, a legless beggar she took pity on, a conjurer of cheap tricks she took for an actual sorcerer, a hedge knight's homely squire, even a pair of young girls from a brothel, twins. Like us, Ray. Once she turned up with an entire troop of mummers. Scepter Amaris, who had been given charge of her religious and moral instruction, despaired of her and even Septon Eustace could not seem to curb her wild ways. The girl must be wed, and soon, he told the king's hand, else I fear that she may bring dishonour down upon House Targaryen and shame his grace, her brother. So Tyland saw the sense in the Septon's council, but there were perils as well. Baylor did not lack for suitors. She was young, beautiful, healthy, wealthy, and of the highest birth. Any lord in the Seven Kingdoms would be glad to take her for his wife. Yet the wrong choice could have grave consequences, for her husband would stand very close to the throne. An unscrupulous, venal, or overly ambitious mate might cause no end of war and woe. A score of possible candidates for Lady Baylor's hand were considered by the regents. Lord Tully, Lord Blackwood, Lord Hightower, as yet unwed, though he had taken his father's widow as a paramour, were all put forth as were a number of less likely choices, including Dalton Greyjoy, the Red Kraken boasted of having a hundred salt wives but had never taken a rock wife, a younger brother of the Princess of Dawn, and even that rogue Rakalio Rindoon. All of them were ultimately discarded for one reason or another. Finally, the Hand and the Council of Regency decided to grant Lady Baylor's hand in marriage to Thaddeus Rowan, Lord of Goldengrove. Rowan was no doubt a prudent choice. His second wife had died the year previous, and he was known to be seeking a suitable young maid to take her place. His virility was beyond question. He had fathered two sons on his first wife and five more on his second. As he had no daughters, Baylor would be the unquestioned mistress of his castle. His four youngest sons were still at home and in need of a woman's hand. The fact that all Lord Rowan's offspring were male counted heavily in his favour. If he were to sire a son on Lady Baylor, Aegon III would have a clear successor. Lord Thaddeus was a bluff, hearty, cheerful man, well-liked and well-respected, a doting husband and a good father to his sons. 
He had fought for Queen Rhaenyra during the dance, and had done so ably and with valour. He was proud, without being arrogant, just in judgment, but not vindictive, loyal to his friends, dutiful in religious matters without being excessively pious, untroubled by overweening ambition. Should the throne pass to Lady Baylor, Lord Rowan would make the perfect consort, supporting her with all his strength and wisdom without seeking to dominate her or usurp her rightful place as ruler. Septon Eustace tells us that the regents were very pleased with the result of their deliberations. Baylor Targaryen, when informed of the match, did not share their pleasure. Lord Rowan is forty years my senior, bald as a stone, with a belly that weighs more than I do, she purportedly told the king's hand. Then she added, I've bedded two of his sons, the eldest and third-born, I think it was. Not both at once, that would have been improper. Whether there is any truth to this, we cannot say. Lady Baylor was known to be deliberately provocative at times. If that was her purpose here, she was successful. The hand sent her back to her rooms, posting guards at her door to make certain she remained there until the regents could convene. Yet a day later, he discovered to his dismay that Baylor had fled the castle by some secret means. Later it was found she had climbed out a window, swapped clothes with a washerwoman, and walked out the front gate. By the time the hue and cry went up, she was halfway across Blackwater Bay, having hired a fisherman to carry her to Driftmark. There she sought out her cousin, the Lord of the Tides, and poured out her woes to him. A fortnight later, Alan Valerian and Bela Targaryen were married in the Sept on Dragonstone. The bride was sixteen, the groom nearly seventeen. Several of the regents, outraged, urged Sir Tyland to appeal to the High Septon for an annulment, but the Hand's own response was one of bemused resignation. Prudently, he had it put about that the marriage had been arranged by king and court, believing that it was Lady Baylor's defiance that was the scandal, rather than her choice of spouse. The boy comes from noble blood, he assured the regents, and I do not doubt that he will prove as loyal as his brother. Thaddeus Rowan's wounded pride was appeased by betrothal to Floris Baratheon, a maid of fourteen years widely considered to be the prettiest of the Four Storms, as Lord Boris's four daughters had become known. In her case it was a misnomer. A sweet girl, if somewhat frivolous, she was to die in childbed two years later. The stormy marriage would prove to be the one made on Dragonstone, as the years would prove. For the Hand and Council of Regents, Baylor Targaryen's midnight flight across Blackwater Bay had confirmed all their doubts about her. The girl is wild, willful, and wanton, as we feared, Sir Willisfell declared mournfully, and now she has tied herself to Lord Corlys's up-jumped bastard. A snake for a sire, a mouse for a mother. Is this to be our prince consort? The regents were in agreement. Baylor Targaryen could not be King Aegon's heir. It must be Lady Rhaena, declared Mouton, provided she is wed. This time, at Sir Tyland's insistence, the girl herself was made a part of the discussions. Lady Rhaena proved to be as tractable as her sister had been willful. She would, of course, wed whomever the king and council wished, she allowed, though it would please me if he was not so old he could not give me children, nor so fat that he would crush me when we are abed. So long as he is kind and gentle and noble, I know that I shall love him. When the hand asked if she had any favourites amongst the lords and knights who had paid her suit, she confessed that she was 
especially fond of Sir Corwin Corbray, whom she had first met in the Vale whilst a ward of Lady Arran. Sir Corwin was far from an ideal choice. A second son, he had two daughters from a previous marriage. At thirty-two he was a man, not a green boy. Yet House Corbray was ancient and honourable, Sir Corwin a knight of such repute that his late father had given him Lady Forlorn, the Valyrian steel blade of the Corbrays. His brother, Leowin, was the protector of the realm. That alone would have made it difficult for the regents to raise objection. And so the match was made. A quick betrothal, followed by a hasty wedding a fortnight later. The Hand would have preferred a longer betrothal, but the regents felt it prudent for Rayner to wed quickly in the event that her sister was already with child. The twins were not the only ladies of the realm to wed in 132 AC. Later that same year, Benjicott Blackwood, Lord of Raventry, led a retinue up the King's Road to Winterfell to stand witness at the marriage of his aunt Alisanne to Lord Cregan Stark. With the North already in the grip of winter, the journey took thrice as long as expected. Half the riders lost their horses as the columns struggled through howling snowstorms, and thrice Lord Blackwood's carts were attacked by bands of outlaws, who carried off much of the column's food and all the wedding gifts. The wedding itself was said to be splendid, however. Black Alley and her wolf pledged their troth before the heart tree in Winterfell's icy godswood. At the feast afterward, four-year-old Rickon, Lord Cregan's son by his first wife, sang a song for his new stepmother. Lady Elenda Baratheon, the widow of Storm's End, also took a new husband that year. With Lord Boros dead and Olivar an infant, Dornish incursions into the Stormlands had grown more numerous, and the outlaws of the Kingswood were proving troublesome. The widow felt the need of a man's strong hand to keep the peace. She chose Sir Stephen Connington, second son of the Lord of Griffin's Roost. Though twenty years younger than Lady Alenda, Connington had proved his valour during Lord Boris's campaign against the Vulture King, and was said to be as fierce as he was handsome. Elsewhere, men were more concerned with war than weddings. All along the Sunset Sea, the Red Kraken and his Iron Men continued to raid and reeve. Tyrosh, Mir, Lys, and the three-headed alliance of Bravos, Penthos, and Lorath battled one another across the stepstones and the disputed lands, whilst the rogue kingdom of Rakalio Rindun pinched shut the bottom of the narrow sea. In King's Landing, Duskendale, Maidenpool, and Gulltown, trade withered. Merchants and traders came howling to the king, who either refused to see them or was not allowed to, depending on whose chronicle we trust. The spectre of famine loomed in the north, as Cregan Stark and his lord's bannermen watched their food stores dwindle, whilst the Night's Watch turned back an ever-increasing number of wildling incursions from beyond the wall. Late that year, a dreadful contagion swept across the Three Sisters. The Winter Fever, as it was called, killed half the population of Sisterton. The surviving half, believing that the disease had come to their shores on a whaler from the port of Ibn, rose up and butchered every Ibanese sailor they could lay hands on, setting fire to their ships. It made no matter. When the disease crossed the Bight to White Harbour, the prayers of the Septons and the potions of the Maesters proved equally powerless against it. Thousands died, amongst them Lord Desmond Manderley. His splendid son Sir Medric, the finest knight in the north, survived him by only four days, before succumbing to the same affliction. 
As Sir Medric had been childless, this had a further calamitous consequence in that the lordship devolved upon his brother Sir Torren, who was thence forced to give up his place on the Council of Regents to take up the rule of White Harbour. That left four regents, where once there had been seven. So many lords, both great and small, had perished during the Dance of the Dragons that the Citadel rightly names this time the Winter of the Widows. Never before or since in the history of the Seven Kingdoms have so many women wielded so much power, ruling in the place of their slain husbands, brothers, and fathers, for sons in swaddling clothes or still on the teat. Many of their stories have been collected in Archmaester Avalon's mammoth When Women Ruled Ladies of the Aftermath. Though Avalon treats hundreds of widows, we must needs confine ourselves to fewer. Four such women played crucial parts in the history of the realm in late 132 and early 133 AC, whether for good or ill. Foremost of these was Lady Joanna, the widow of Casterly Rock, who ruled the domains of House Lannister for her young son, Lord Lorien. She had appealed time and time again to Aegon III's hand, her late Lord Husband's twin, for aid against the Reavers, but none had been forthcoming. Desperate to protect her people, Lady Joanna at last donned a man's mail to lead the men of Lannisport and Casterly Rock against the foe. The songs tell of how she slew a dozen ironmen beneath the walls of Case, but those may be safely put aside as the work of drunken singers. Joanna carried a banner into battle, not a sword. Her courage did help inspire her Westermen, however, for the raiders were soon routed and Case was saved. Amongst the dead was the Red Kraken's favourite uncle. Lady Sharis Footley, the widow of Tumbleton, achieved a different sort of fame by her efforts to restore that shattered town. Ruling in the name of her infant son, half a year after second Tumbleton she had given birth to a lusty, dark-haired boy whom she proclaimed her late lord husband's true-born heir, though it was far more likely that the boy had been sired by bold John Roxton, Lady Sharis pulled down the burned shells of shops and houses, rebuilt the town walls, buried the dead, planted wheat and barley and turnips in the fields where the camps had been, and even had the heads of the dragon's sea-smoke and vermithor cleaned and mounted and displayed in the town square, where travellers paid good coin to view them, a penny for a look, a star to touch them. In Old Town, relations between the High Septon and Lord Ormond's widow, the Lady Sam, continued to worsen when she ignored His High Holiness's command to remove herself from her stepson's bed and take vows as a silent sister as penance for her sins. Righteous in his wrath, the High Septon condemned the Dowager Lady of Old Town as a shameless fornicator and forbade her to set foot in the Starry Sept until she had repented and sought forgiveness. Instead, Lady Samantha mounted a war-horse and burst into the sept as his high holiness was leading a prayer. When he demanded to know her purpose, Lady Sam replied that whilst he had forbidden her to set foot in the sept, he had said naught about her horse's hooves. Then she commanded her knights to bar the doors. If the sept was closed to her, it would be closed to all. Though he quaked and thundered and called down maledictions upon this harlot on a horse, in the end the High Septon had no choice but to relent. The fourth, and last for our purposes, of these remarkable women emerged from the twisted towers and blasted keeps of Harrenhal 
that vast ruin beside the water of the god's eye. Shunned and forgotten since Daemon Targaryen and his nephew Aemond had met there for their final flight, Black Heron's accursed seat had become a haunt of outlaws, robber knights, and broken men, who sallied forth from behind its walls to prey upon travellers, fisherfolk, and farmers. A year ago they had been few, but of late their numbers had grown, and it was being said that a sorceress ruled over them, a witch-queen of fearsome power. When these tales reached King's Landing, Sir Tyland decided it was time to reclaim the castle. This task he entrusted to a knight of the King's Guard, Sir Regis Groves, who set out from the city with half a hundred seasoned men. At Castle Darry, he was joined by Sir Damon Darry with a light number. Rashly, Sir Regis assumed this would be more than sufficient to deal with a few squatters. Arriving before the walls of Harren Hall, however, he found the gates closed and hundreds of armed men on the battlements. There were at least six hundred souls within the castle, a third of them men of fighting age. When Sir Regis demanded to speak to their lord, a woman emerged to treat with him, with a child beside her. The Witch Queen of Harrenhal proved to be none other than Alice Rivers, the base-born wet nurse who had been the prisoner and then the paramour of Prince Aemond Targaryen, and now claimed to be his widow. The boy was Aemon's, she told the knight. His bastard, said Sir Regis. His true-born son and heir, Alice Rivers spat back, and the rightful king of Westeros. She commanded the knight to kneel before your king and swear him his sword. Sir Regis laughed at this, saying, I do not kneel to bastards, much less the base-born whelp of a kinslayer and a milk cow. What happened next remains a matter of some dispute. Some say that Alice Rivers merely raised a hand, and Sir Regis began to scream and clutch his head until his skull burst apart, spraying blood and brains. Others insist the widow's gesture was a signal at which a crossbowman on the battlements let fly a bolt that took Sir Regis through an eye. Mushroom, who was hundreds of leagues away, has suggested that perhaps one of the men on the walls was skilled in the use of a sling. Soft lead balls, when slung with sufficient force, have been known to cause the sort of explosive effect that Grove's men saw and attributed to sorcery. Whatever the case, Sir Regis Groves was dead in an instant. Half a heartbeat later, the gates of Harrenhal burst open, and a swarm of howling riders charged forth. A bloody fight ensued. The king's men were put to rout. Sir Damon Darry, being well-horsed, well-armoured, and well-trained, was one of the few to escape. The witch-queen's minions hunted him all through the night before abandoning the chase. Some thirty-two men lived to return to Castle Darry, of the hundred that had set out. The next day a thirty-third made his appearance. Having been captured with a dozen others, he had been forced to watch them die by torture, one by one, before being turned loose to deliver a warning. "'I'm to tell you what she said,' he gasped. "'But you can't laugh. The widow put a curse on me. Any manner you laughs, I die. When Sir Damon assured him that no one was going to laugh at him, the messenger said, Don't come again unless you mean to bend your knees, she says. Any man who comes near her walls will die. There's power in them stones, and the widow's woken it. Seven save us all. She has a dragon. I've seen it. The name of the messenger is lost to us, along with the name of the man who laughed. But someone did one of Lord Darry's men. 
The messenger looked at him, stricken, then clutched at his throat and began to wheeze. Unable to draw breath, he was dead in moments. Supposedly the imprints of a woman's fingers could be seen upon his skin, as if she had been in the room choking him. The death of a Kingsguard knight was greatly troubling to Sir Tyland, though Unwin Peak discounted Sir Damon Darry's talk of sorcery and dragons and put down the death of Regis Groves and his men to outlaws. The other regents concurred. A stronger force would be required to root them out of Harrenhal, they concluded, as that peaceful year of 132 AC came to its end. But before Sir Tyland could organize such an assault, or even consider who might take Sir Regis's place in Aegon Seven, a threat far worse than any witch queen descended on the city. For on the third day of 133 AC, winter fever arrived in King's Landing. Whether or not the fever had been born in the dark forests of Ib and brought to Westeros by a whaler, as the sister men believed, it was assuredly moving from port to port. White Harbour, Gulltown, Maidenpool, and Duskendale had been afflicted, each in turn. There were reports that Bravos was being ravaged as well. The first sign of the disease was a red flush of the face, easily mistaken for the bright red cheeks that many men exhibit after exposure to the frosty air of a cold winter's day. But fever followed, slight at first, but rising, ever rising. Bleeding did not help, nor garlic, nor any of the various potions, poultices, and tinctures that were tried. Packing the afflicted in tubs of snow and icy water seemed to slow the course of the fever, but did not halt it, those maesters who grappled with the disease soon found. By the second day, the victim would begin to shiver violently and complain of being cold, though he might feel burning hot to the touch. On the third day came delirium and bloody sweats. By the fourth day, the man was dead, or on the path to recovery should the fever break. Only one man in four survived the winter fever. Not since the shivers ravaged Westeros during the reign of Jaehaerys I had such a terrible pestilence been seen in the Seven Kingdoms. In King's Landing, the first signs of the fatal flush were seen along the riverside, amongst the sailors, ferrymen, fishmongers, dockers, stevedores, and wharfside whores who plied their trades beside the Blackwater Rush. Before most had even realized they were ill, they had spread the contagion throughout every part of the city, to rich and poor alike. When word reached court, Grand Maester Munken went himself to examine some of those afflicted, to ascertain whether this was indeed the winter fever, and not some lesser illness. Alarmed by what he saw, Munken did not return to the castle, for fear that he himself might have been afflicted by his close contact with two score feverish whores and dockers. Instead, he sent his acolyte with an urgent letter to the king's hand. Sir Tyland acted immediately, commanding the gold cloaks to close the city and see that no one entered or left until the fever had run its course. He ordered the great gates of the Red Keep barred as well, to keep the disease from king and court. The winter fever had no respect for gates, or guards, or castle walls, alas. Though the fever seemed to have grown somewhat less potent as it moved south, tens of thousands turned feverish in the days that followed. Three quarters of those died. Grand Maester Munken proved to be one of the fortunate fourth, and recovered. But Sir Willis Fell, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, was struck down, together with two of his sworn brothers. 
The Lord Protector, Leowyn Corbray, retired to his chambers when stricken, and tried to cure himself with hot, mulled wine. He died along with his mistress and several of his servants. Two of Queen Jehera's maids grew feverish and succumbed, though the little queen herself remained hale and healthy. The commander of the city watch died. Nine days later, his successor followed him into the grave. Nor were the regents spared. Lord Westerling and Lord Mooton both grew ill. Lord Mooton's fever broke and he survived, though much weakened. Roland Westerling, an older man, perished. One death may have been a mercy. The dowager Queen Alicent of House Hightower, second wife of King Viserys I and mother to his sons Aegon, Aemond and Daron, and his daughter Helena, died on the same night as Lord Westerling, after confessing her sins to her scepter. She had outlived all of her children, and spent the last year of her life confined to her apartments, with no company but her scepter, the serving girls who brought her food, and the guards outside her door. Books were given her, and needles and thread, but her guards said Alicent spent more time weeping than reading or sewing. One day she ripped all her clothing into pieces. By the end of the year she had taken to talking to herself, and had come to have a deep aversion to the colour green. In her last days, the Queen Dowager seemed to become more lucid. I want to see my sons again, she told her scepter, and Helena, my sweet girl, oh, and King Jeheris. I will read to him, as I did when I was little. He used to say I had a lovely voice. Strangely, in her final hours, Queen Alicent spoke often of the old king, but never of her husband, King Viserys. The stranger came for her, on a rainy night, at the hour of the wolf. All these deaths were recorded faithfully by Septon Eustace, who takes care to give us the inspiring last words of every great lord and noble lady. A mushroom names the dead as well, but spends more time on the follies of the living, such as the homely squire who convinced the pretty bedmaid to yield her virtue to him by telling her he had the flush, and in four days I will be dead and I would not die without ever knowing love. The ploy proved so successful that he returned to it with six other girls, but when he failed to die they began to talk, and his scheme unravelled. Mushroom attributes his own survival to drink. If I drank sufficient wine, I reasoned I might never know I was sick, and every fool knows that the things you do not know will never hurt you. During those dark days, two unlikely heroes came briefly to the fore. One was Orwile, whose jailers freed him from his cell after many other maesters had been laid low by the fever. Old age, fear, and long confinement had left him a shell of the man that he had been, and his cures and potions proved no more efficacious than those of other maesters, yet Orwile worked tirelessly to save those he could, and ease the passing of those he could not. The other hero, to the astonishment of all, was the young king. To the horror of his king's guard, Aegon spent his days visiting the sick, and often sat with them for hours, sometimes holding their hands in his own, or soothing their fevered brows with cool, damp cloths. Though his grace seldom spoke, he shared his silences with them, and listened as they told him stories of their lives, begged him for forgiveness, or boasted of conquests, kindnesses, and children. Most of those he visited died, but those who lived would afterward attribute their survival to the touch of the king's healing hands. 
Yet if indeed there is some magic in a king's touch, as many small folk believe, it failed when it was needed most. The last bedside visited by Aegon III was that of Sir Tyland Lannister. Through the city's darkest days, Sir Tyland had remained in the Tower of the Hand, striving day and night against the stranger. Though blind and maimed, he suffered no more than exhaustion almost to the last, but as cruel fate would have it, when the worst was past, and new cases of the winter fever had dropped away to almost nothing, a morning came when Sir Tyland commanded his serving man to close a window. It is very cold in here, he said, though the fire in the hearth was blazing, and the window was already closed. The hand declined quickly after that. The fever took his life in two days instead of the usual four. Septon Eustace was with him when he died, as was the boy king that he had served. Aegon took his hand as he breathed his last. Sir Tyland Lannister had never been beloved. After the death of Queen Rhaenyra, he had urged Aegon II to put her son Aegon to death as well, and certain blacks hated him for that. Yet after the death of Aegon II, he had remained to serve Aegon III, and certain greens hated him for that. Coming second from his mother's womb a few heartbeats after his twin brother Jason had denied him the glory of lordship and the gold of Casterly Rock, leaving him to make his own place in the world. Set Island never married nor fathered children, so there were few to mourn him when he was carried off. The veil he wore to conceal his disfigured face gave rise to the tale that the visage underneath was monstrous and evil. Some called him craven for keeping Westeros out of the Daughters' War and doing so little to curb the grey joys in the West. By moving three quarters of the crown's gold from King's Landing, whilst Aegon II's master of coin, Tyland Lannister had sown the seeds of Queen Rhaenyra's downfall, a stroke of cunning that would in the end cost him his eyes, ears, and health, and cost the Queen her throne and her very life. Yet it must be said, that he served Rhaenyra's son well and faithfully as hand. Under the Regents War and Peace and Cattle Shows King Aegon III was still a boy, well shy of his thirteenth name day, but in the days following the death of Sir Tyland Lannister, he displayed a maturity beyond his years. Passing over Sir Marston Waters, second in command of the King's Guard, his grace bestowed white cloaks upon Sir Robin Massey and Sir Robert Darklin, and made Massey Lord Commander. With Grand Maester Munken still down in the city tending to victims of the winter fever, his grace turned to his predecessor, instructing the former Grand Maester Orwell to summon Lord Thaddeus Rowan to the city. I would have Lord Rowan as my hand, Sir Tyland thought well enough of him to offer him my sister's hand in marriage, so I know he can be trusted. He wanted Baylor back at court as well. Lord Allen shall be my admiral, as his grandsire was. Orwell, mayhaps hopeful of a royal pardon, hurriedly sent the ravens on their way. King Aegon had acted without consulting his council of regents, however. Only three remained in King's Landing. Lord Peak, Lord Mooton, and Grand Maester Munken, who came rushing back inside the Red Keep, the moment Sir Robert Darklin commanded that its gates be opened once again. Manfred Mooton was bedridden, still recovering his strength after his battle with the fever, 
and asked that any decisions be postponed until Lady Jane Arran and Lord Royce Carron could be summoned back from the Vale and the Dornish marches to take part in the deliberations. His colleagues would have none of it, however, Lord Peake insisting that the former regents had given up their places on the council by departing King's Landing. With the Grand Maester's support, Munken would later come to rue his acquiescence, Unwin Peake then set aside all of the King's appointments and arrangements, on the grounds that no boy of twelve had the judgment to decide such weighty matters himself. Marston Waters was confirmed as Lord Commander of the King's Guard, whilst Darklin and Massey were commanded to surrender their white cloaks, so that Sir Marston might bestow them on knights of his own choosing. Grand Maester Orwell was returned to his cell to await execution. So as not to offend Lord Rowan, the regents offered him a place amongst them and the office of Justicia and Master of Laws. No similar gesture was made to Alan Valerian, but of course there was no question of such a boy of his years and of such uncertain lineage serving as Lord Admiral. The offices of King's Hand and Protector of the Realm, previously separate, were now combined, and filled by none other than Unwin Peak himself. Mushroom tells us that King Aegon III reacted to the decisions of his regents with a sullen silence, speaking only once, to protest the dismissal of Massey and Darklin. King's guards serve for life, the boy said, to which Lord Peak replied, only when they have been properly appointed, your grace. Elsewise, Septon Eustace tells us, the king received the decrees courteously and thanked Lord Peak for his wisdom, as... I am still a boy, as your lordship knows, and in want of instruction in these matters. If his true feelings were otherwise, Aegon did not choose to voice them, but instead retreated back into silence and passivity. For the remainder of his minority, King Aegon III took little part in the rule of his realm, save for fixing his signature and seal upon such papers as Lord Peak presented him. On certain formal occasions his grace would be brought out to sit the Iron Throne or welcome an envoy, but elsewise he was little seen inside the Red Keep, and never beyond its walls. It behooves us now to pause for a moment and turn our gaze upon Unwin Peak, who would rule the Seven Kingdoms in all but name for the best part of three years, serving as Lord Regent, Protector of the Realm, and Hand of the King. His house was amongst the oldest in the Reach, its deep roots twisting back to the age of heroes and the first men. Amongst his many illustrious ancestors, his lordship could count such legends as Sir Urthon, the shield-smasher, Lord Merrin, the scribe, Lady Irma of the Golden Bowl, Sir Barquin, the besieger, Lord Edison, the elder, Lord Edison, the younger, and Lord Emmerich, the avenger. Many peaks had served as councillors at Highgarden when the Reach was the richest and most powerful kingdom in all Westeros. When the pride and power of House Manderley became overweening, it was Lorimar Peak who humbled them and drove them into exile in the north, for which service King Persian III Gardener granted him the former Manderley seat at Dunstanbury and its attendant lands. King Persian's son Gwain took Lord Lorimar's daughter as his bride as well, making her the seventh peak maiden to sit beneath the green hand as queen of all the reach. Through the centuries, other daughters of House Peak had married Redwines, Rowans, Costains, Oakharts, Osgreys, Florence, even Hightowers. All this had ended with the coming of the dragons, 
Lord Armand Peak and his sons had perished on the field of fire, beside King Nern and his. With House Gardener extinguished, Aegon the Conqueror had granted High Garden and the rule of the Reach to House Tyrell, the former royal stewards. The Tyrells had no blood ties to the Peaks and no reason to favor them, and thus the slow fall of this proud house had begun. A century later, the Peaks still held three castles, and their lands were wide and well-peopled, if not particularly rich, but no longer did they command pride of place amongst the bannermen of Highgarden. Unwin Peak was determined to redress that and restore House Peak to its former greatness. Like his father, who had sided with the majority at the Great Council of 101, he did not believe it was a woman's place to rule over men. During the Dance of the Dragons, Lord Unwin had been amongst the fiercest of the Greens, leading forth a thousand swords and spears to keep Aegon II on the Iron Throne. When Ormond Hightower fell at Tumbleton, Lord Unwin believed command of his host should have come to him, but this was denied him by scheming rivals. This he never forgave, stabbing the turncloak Owain Borney and plotting the murders of the dragon riders Hugh Hammer and Ulf White, foremost of the Caltrops, though this was not widely known, and one of only three still living. Lord Unwin had proved at Tumbleton that he was no man to trifle with. He would prove that again in King's Landing. Having elevated Sir Marston Waters to command of the King's Guard, Lord Peake now prevailed upon him to confer white cloaks on two of his own kin, his nephew, Sir Amory Peake of Starpike, and his bastard brother, Sir Mervyn Flowers. The city watch was placed under the command of Sir Lucas Laygood, the son of one of the Caltrops who had died at Tumbleton. To replace the men who had died during the winter fever in the Moon of Madness, the hand bestowed gold cloaks on five hundred of his own men. Lord Peake did not have a trusting nature, and all he had seen and been a part of at Tumbleton had convinced him that his enemies would bring him down if given half a chance. Ever mindful of his own safety, he surrounded himself with his own personal guard, ten sellswords loyal only to him, and the gold he lavished on them, who in due course became known as his Fingers. Their captain, a volunteer adventurer named Tassario, had tiger stripes tattooed across his face and back, the marks of a slave soldier. Men called him Tassario the Tiger to his face, which pleased him. Behind his back, they called him Tassario the Thumb, the mocking sobriquet that Mushroom had bestowed upon him. Once secure in his own person, the new hand began bringing his own supporters, kin, and friends to court, in place of men and women whose loyalty was less assured. His widowed aunt, Clarice Osgray, was put in charge of Queen Jehera's household, supervising her maids and servants. Sir Gareth Long, master-at-arms at Starpike, was granted the same title at the Red Keep, and tasked with training King Aegon for knighthood. George Graceford, Lord of Holyhaw, and Sir Victor Risley, Knight of Risley Glade, the sole surviving Caltrops aside from Lord Peak himself, were appointed Lord Confessor and King's Justice, respectively. The Hand even went so far as to dismiss Septon Eustace, bringing in a younger man, Septon Bernard, to tend to the spiritual needs of the court and supervise his grace's religious and moral instruction. Bernard, too, was of his blood, being descended from a younger sister of his great-grandsire. 
Once relieved of his duties, Septon Eustace departed King's Landing for Stony Sept, the town of his birth, where he devoted himself to the writing of his great, if somewhat turgid work, The Reign of King Viserys, first of his name, and the dance of the dragons that came after. Sadly, Septon Bernard preferred composing sacred music to setting down court gossip, and his writings are therefore of little interest to historians and scholars, and of less interest to those who find pleasure in sacred music, it grieves us to say. None of these changes pleased the young king. His grace was especially unhappy with his king's guard. He neither liked nor trusted the two new men, and had not forgotten the presence of Sir Marston Waters at his mother's death. King Aegon misliked the hand's fingers even more, if that is possible, especially their brash and foul-mouthed commander, Tessario the Thumb. That mislike turned to hatred when the Volantine slew Sir Robin Massey, one of the young knights that Aegon had wished to name to his king's guard, in a quarrel over a horse both men wished to buy. The king soon developed a strong antipathy for his new master-at-arms as well. Sir Gareth Long was a skilled swordsman, but a stern taskmaster, renowned at Starpike for his harshness toward the boys he instructed. Those who did not meet his standards were made to go for days without sleep, doused in tubs of iced water, had their heads shaved, and were oft beaten. None of these punishments were available to Sir Gareth in his new position, though Aegon was a sullen student who displayed little interest in swordplay or the arts of war. His royal person was inviolate. Whenever Sir Gareth spoke to him too loudly or too harshly, the king would simply throw down his sword and shield and walk away. Aegon seemed to have only one companion he cared about. Gaiman Palehair, his six-year-old cup-bearer and food-taster, not only shared all of the king's meals but oft accompanied him to the yard, as Sir Gareth did not fail to note. As a bastard born of a whore, Gaemon counted for little in the court, so when Sir Gareth asked Lord Peak to make the lad the king's whipping boy, the hand was pleased to do so. Thereafter, any misbehavior, laziness, or truculence on King Aegon's part resulted in punishment for his friend. Gaemon's blood and Gaemon's tears reached the king as none of Gareth Long's words ever had, and his grace's improvement was soon marked by every man who watched him in the castle yard but the king's mislike of his teacher only deepened. Tyland Lannister, blind and crippled, had always treated the king with deference, speaking to him gently, seeking to guide rather than command. Unwin Peak made a sterner hand. Brusque and hard, he showed little patience with the young monarch, treating him more like a sulky boy than like a king, in Mushroom's words and making no effort to involve his grace in the day-to-day rule of his kingdom. When Aegon III retreated back into silence, solitude, and a brooding passivity, his hand was pleased to ignore him, save on certain formal occasions when his presence was required. Rightly or wrongly, Sir Tyland Lannister was perceived as having been a weak and ineffectual hand, yet somehow also sinister, scheming, even monstrous. Lord Unwin Peake, came to the handship determined to demonstrate his strength and rectitude. This hand is not blind, nor veiled, nor crippled, he announced before king and court. This hand can still wield a sword. And so saying, he drew his long sword from its scabbard and raised it high so all might see it.
whispers flew about the hall. It was no common blade that his lordship held, but one forged of Valyrian steel. Orphan maker, last seen in the hands of bold John Roxton as he laid about at Hardhue Hammer's men in a yard at Tumbleton. The feast day of our father above is a most propitious day for making judgments, the Septon's teachers. In 133 AC, the new hand decreed that it should be a day when those who had previously been judged would at last be punished for their crimes. The city jails were crowded to bursting, and even the deep dungeons below the Red Keep were near full. Lord Unwin emptied them. The prisoners were marched or dragged out to the square before the Red Keep's gates, where thousands of Kingslanders gathered to see them receive their due. With the somber young king and his stern hand looking down from the battlements, the king's justice set to work. As there was too much work for one sword alone, Tassario the thumb and his fingers were tasked with aiding him. It would have gone more quickly if the hand had sent to the street of flies for butchers, Mushroom observes, for it was butchers' work they were about, hacking and cleaving. Forty thieves had their hands removed, eight rapers were gelded, then marched naked to the riverside with their genitals hung about their necks to be put aboard ships for the war. A suspected poor fellow who preached that the seven sent the winter fever to punish House Targaryen for incest had his tongue removed. Two pox-riddled whores were mutilated in unspeakable ways for passing the pox to dozens of men. Six servants found guilty of stealing from their masters had their noses slit. A seventh, who cut a hole in a wall to peek upon his master's daughters in their nakedness, had the offending eye plucked out as well. Next came the murderers. Seven were brought forth, one an innkeep who had been killing certain of his guests, those he judged would not be missed, and stealing their valuables since the old king's time. Where the other murderers were hanged straight away, he had his hands hacked off and burned before his eyes, then he was hung by a noose and disemboweled as he strangled. Last came the three most prominent prisoners, the ones that the mob had been waiting for. Yet another shepherd reborn, the captain of a Pentoshi merchantman who had been accused and found guilty of bringing the winter fever from Sisterton to King's Landing, and the former Grand Maester Orwile, a convicted traitor and a deserter from the Night's Watch. The King's Justice, Sir Victor Risley, attended to each of them himself. He removed the heads of the Pentoshi and the false shepherd with his headsman's axe, but Grand Maester Orwai was granted the honour of dying by the sword, in view of his age, high birth, and long service. When our father's feast was done, and the mob before the gates dispersed, the king's hand was well satisfied, wrote Septon Eustace, who would depart for Stony Sept the next day. Would that I could write that the small folk returned to their homes and hovels to fast and pray, and beg forgiveness for their own sins, but that would be far from the truth. Flush with blood, they sought out dens of sin instead, and the city's alehouses, wine sinks, and brothels were crowded unto bursting, for such is the wickedness of men. Mushroom says the same, though in his own way. Whenever I see a man put to death, I like to have a flagon and a woman afterward to remind myself that I am still alive. King Aegon III stood atop the gatehouse battlements throughout the feast of our father above, and never spoke nor looked away from the bloodletting below. The king had as well been made of wax, observed Septon Eustace. Grand Maester Munken echoes him, 
His grace was present as was his duty, yet somehow he seemed far away as well. Some of the condemned turned to the battlements to shout out cries for mercy, but the king never seemed to see them nor hear their desperate words. Make no mistake, this feast was served to us by the hand, and twas he who gorged upon it. By mid-year the castle, city, and king were all firmly in the grasp of the new hand. The small folk were quiet. The winter fever had receded. Queen Jehera hid in seclusion in her chambers. King Aegon trained in the yard by morning and stared at the stars by night. Beyond the walls of King's Landing, however, the woes that had afflicted the realm these past two years had only worsened. Trade had withered away to nothing. War continued in the West. Famine and fever ruled much of the North, and to the South, the Dornish men were growing bolder and more troublesome. It was past time the Iron Throne showed its power, Lord Peak decided. Construction had been completed on eight of the ten great warships commissioned by Sir Tyland, so the Hand resolved to begin by opening the narrow sea to trade once more. To command the royal fleet, he tapped another uncle, Sir Gedmund Peak, a seasoned battler known as Gedmund Greataxe for his favoured weapon. Though justly renowned for his prowess as a warrior, Sir Gedmund had little knowledge or experience of ships, however, so his lordship also summoned the notorious cell-sail Ned Bean, called Black Bean for his thick black beard, to serve as the Great Axe's second-in-command and advise him on all matters nautical. The situation in the Stepstones, as Sir Gedmund and Black Bean set sail, was chaotic to say the least. Recalio Rindun's ships had been swept from the sea for the most part, but he still ruled Bloodstone, largest of the islands, and a few smaller rocks. The Tyroshi had been on the point of overwhelming him when Lys and Mir had made peace and launched a joint attack on Tyrosh, forcing the Archon to recall his ships and swords. The three-headed alliance of Bravos, Pentos, and Lorath had lost one of its heads with the withdrawal of the Lorathi, but the Pentoshi sell swords now held all the stepstones not in the hands of Recalio's men, and the Bravosi warships owned the waters between. Westeros could not hope to prevail in a sea war against Bravos, Lord Unwin knew. His purpose, he declared, was to put an end to the rogue Recalio Rindun and his piratical kingdom and establish a presence upon Bloodstone, to ensure that never again could the narrow sea be closed. The royal fleet, comprised of the eight new warships and some twenty older cogs and galleys, was nowise large enough to accomplish this, so the hand wrote to Driftmark, instructing the Lord of the Tides to gather your Lord Grandsire's fleets and put them under the command of our good Uncle Gedmund, so that he may open the sea roads once again. This was no more than Alan Valerian had long desired, as the sea snake had before him, though when he read the message the young Lord bristled and declared, They are my fleets now, and Baylor's monkey is more suited to command them than Uncle Gedmund. Even so, he did as he was bid, bringing together sixty war galleys, thirty long ships, and more than a hundred cogs and great cogs to meet the royal fleet as it swept out from King's Landing. As the great war fleet passed through the gullet, Sir Gedmund sent over Blackbean to Lord Allen's flagship, Queen Rhaenys, with a letter authorizing him to take command of the Valerian squadrons, so that they may benefit from his many years of experience. Lord Allen sent him back. I would have hanged him, he wrote to Sir Gedmund, but I am loath to waste good hempen rope on a bean.
In winter, strong north winds oft prevail upon the narrow sea, so the fleet made splendid time on its voyage south. Off Tarth, another dozen longships rode out to further swell their ranks, commanded by Lord Brindamere, the Evenstar. The tidings that his lordship brought proved less welcome, however. The Sea Lord of Bravos, the Archon of Tyrosh, and Rakalio Rindoon had made common cause. They would rule the Stepstones jointly, and only such ships as were licensed to trade by Bravos or Tyrosh would be allowed to pass. What of Pentos? Lord Allen wanted to know. Discarded, the Even Star informed him. A pie split three ways offers larger slices than one cut into quarters. Gedmund Greataxe, who had been so seasick during the voyage that the sailors had named him Gedmund Greensick, decided that the king's hand should be informed of this new alignment amongst the warring cities. The Evenstar had already sent a raven to King's Landing, so Peak decreed that the fleet would remain at Tarth until a reply was received. That will lose us any hope of taking Recalio by surprise, argued Alan Valerian, but Sir Gedmund proved adamant. The two commanders parted angrily. The next day, when the sun rose, Blackbean woke Sir Gedmund to inform him that the Lord of the Tides was gone. The entire Valerian fleet had slipped off during the night. Gedmund Greataxe snorted. Run back to Driftmark, I'd venture, he said. Ned Bean agreed, calling Lord Allen a scared boy. They could not have been more wrong. Lord Allen had taken his ships south, not north. Three days later, whilst Gedmund Greataxe and his royal fleet still lingered off the coast of Tarth waiting on a raven, battle was joined amongst the rocks, sea stacks, and tangled waterways of the Stepstones. The attack caught the Bravosi unawares, with their Grand Admiral and two score of his captains feasting on bloodstone with Recalio Rindoon and the envoys from Tyrosh. Half of the Bravosi ships were taken, burned, or sunk, while still at anchor or tied to a dock, others as they raised sail and tried to get underway. The fight was not entirely bloodless. The Grand Defiance, a towering Bravosi drummond of four hundred oars, fought her way past half a dozen smaller Valerian warships to gain the open sea, only to find Lord Allen himself bearing down on her. Too late, the Bravosi tried to turn to face her attacker, but the huge Drummond was ponderous in the water and slow to answer, and Queen Rhaenys struck her broadside with every oar-churning water. The Queen's prow smashed into the side of the great Bravosi ship, like a great oaken fist, one observer wrote later, splintering her oars, crashing through her planks and hull, toppling her masts, cutting the massive Drummond almost in two. When Lord Allen shouted to his rowers to back them off, the sea rushed into the gaping wound the Queen had made, and the Grand Defiance went down in mere moments. And with it, the Sea Lord's swollen pride. Allen Valerian's victory was complete. He lost three ships in the Stepstones, one, sadly, was the true heart, captained by his cousin Darren, who perished when she sank, whilst sinking more than thirty and capturing six galleys, eleven cogs, eighty-nine hostages, vast amounts of food, drink, arms, and coin, and an elephant meant for the Sea Lord's menagerie. All this the Lord of the Tides brought back to Westeros, along with the name that he would carry for the rest of his life, Oakenfist. When Lord Allen sailed Queen Rhaenys up the Blackwater Rush and rode in through the river gate on the back of the Sea Lord's Elephant, 
Tens of thousands lined the city streets, shouting his name and clamoring for a glimpse of their new hero. At the gates of the Red Keep, King Aegon III himself appeared to welcome him. Once within the walls, however, it was a different story. By the time Alan Oakenfist reached the throne room, the young king had somehow vanished. Instead, Lord Unwin Peak scowled down at him from atop the Iron Throne and said, You fool! You thrice-damned fool! If I dared, I would have your bloody head off! The Hand had good cause to be so wroth. However loudly the mob might cheer for Oakenfist, their bold young hero's rash attack had left the realm in an untenable position. Lord Valerian might have captured a score of Bravosi ships and an elephant, but he had not taken Bloodstone, nor any of the other Stepstones. The knights and men-at-arms such a conquest would have required had been aboard the larger ships of the royal fleet that he abandoned off the shores of Tarth. The destruction of Recalio Rindun's pirate kingdom had been Lord Peak's objective. Instead, Recalio appeared to have emerged stronger than ever. The last thing the Hand desired was war with Bravos, richest and most powerful of the nine free cities. Yet that is what you have given us, my lord, Peak thundered. You have given us a war! And an elephant, Lord Allen answered insolently. Pray do not forget the elephant, my lord. The remark drew nervous titters even from Lord Peak's own hand-picked men, Mushroom tells us. But the hand was not amused. He was not a man who liked to laugh himself, the dwarf says and he liked being laughed at even less. Though other men might fear to provoke Lord Unwin's enmity, Alan Oakenfist was secure in his own strength. Though barely a man grown, and bastard-born as well, he was wed to the king's half-sister, had all the power and wealth of House Valerian at his command, and had just become the darling of the small folk. Lord Regent or no, Unwin Peak was not so mad as to imagine he could safely harm the hero of the Stepstones. All young men suspect they are immortal, Grand Maester Munken writes in the true telling, and whenever a young warrior tastes the heady wine of victory, suspicion becomes certainty. Yet the confidence of youth counts for little against the cunning of age. Lord Allen might smile at the Hand's rebukes, but he would soon be given good reason to dread the Hand's reward. Munken knew whereof he wrote. Seven days after the triumphant return of Lord Allen to King's Landing, he was honoured in a lavish ceremony in the Red Keep, with King Aegon III seated on the Iron Throne and the court and half the city looking on. Sir Marston Waters, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, dubbed him a knight. Unwin Peak, Lord Regent and Hand of the King, draped an admiral's golden chain about his neck and presented him with a silver replica of the Queen Rhaenys as a token of his victory. The king himself inquired if his lordship would consent to serve upon his small council as master of ships. Lord Allen humbly agreed. Then the hand's fingers closed about his throat, says Mushroom. The voice was Aegon's, the words Unwin's. His leal subjects in the west had long been troubled by reavers from the Iron Islands, the young king declared. And who better to bring peace to the sunset sea than his new admiral. And Alan Oakenfist, that proud and headstrong youth, found he had no choice but to agree to sail his fleets around the southern end of Westeros to win back Fair Isle and end the menace of Lord Dalton Greyjoy and his Iron Men. 
The trap was neatly set. The voyage was perilous and like to take a heavy toll of the Valerian fleets. The stepstones teemed with enemies who would not be taken unawares a second time. Past them lay the barren coasts of Dawn, where Lord Allen was not like to find safe harbour. And should he gain the Sunset Sea, he would find the Red Kraken waiting with his longships. If the Iron Men prevailed, the power of House Valerian would be broken for good and all, and Lord Peak need never again suffer the insolence of the boy called Oakenfist. If Lord Allen triumphed, Fair Isle would be restored to its true lords, the Westlands would be freed from further outrage, and the lords of the Seven Kingdoms would learn the price of defying King Aegon III and his new hand. The Lord of the Tides made a gift of his elephant to King Aegon III as he took his leave of King's Landing. Returning to Hull to gather his fleet and take on provisions for the long journey, he said his farewells to his wife, the Lady Baylor, who sent him on his way with a kiss and the news that she was with child. Name him Corlys, after my grandsire, Lord Allen told her. One day he may sit the Iron Throne. Baylor laughed at that. I will name her Lena, after my mother. One day she may ride a dragon. Lord Corlys Valerian had made nine famous voyages on his sea snake, it will be recalled. Lord Allen Oakenfist would make six upon six different ships. My ladies, he would call them. On his voyage round dawn to Lannisport, he sailed a Bravosi war galley of two hundred oars, captured in the Stepstones, and renamed the Lady Baylor after his young wife. Some might think it queer for Lord Peak to send off the largest fleet in the Seven Kingdoms, whilst war with Bravos threatened. Sir Gedmund Peak and the royal fleet had been recalled from Tarth to the Gullet to guard the entrance to Blackwater Bay should the Bravosi seek to retaliate against King's Landing. But other ports and cities all up and down the narrow sea remained vulnerable. So the King's Hand dispatched fellow regent, Lord Manfred Mouton, to Bravos to treat with the sea lord and return his elephant. Six other noble lords accompanied him, along with threescore knights, guardsmen, servants, scribes and septons, six singers, and Mushroom, who supposedly hid in a wine cask to escape the gloom of the Red Keep and find a place where men remembered how to laugh. Then as now the Bravosi were a pragmatic people, for theirs is a city of escaped slaves where a thousand false gods are honoured, but only gold is truly worshipped. Profit means more than pride amongst the Hundred Isles. Upon arrival, Lord Mouton and his companions marvelled at the Titan and were taken to the fabled arsenal to witness the building of a warship, completed in a single day. We have already replaced every ship that your boy Admiral stole or sank, the Sea Lord boasted to Lord Mouton. Having thus demonstrated the power of Bravos, however, he was more than willing to be placated. Whilst he haggled with Lord Mouton over terms of peace, Lords Follard and Cressy spread lavish bribes amongst the city's keyholders, magisters, priests, and merchant princes. In the end, in return for a very sizable indemnity, Bravos forgave Lord Valerian's unwarranted transgression, agreed to dissolve her alliance with Tyrosh, and break all ties with Recalio Rindun, and ceded the Stepstones to the Iron Throne. Since the islands were held by Rindun and the Pentoshi at this time, the Sea Lord had in effect sold something that he did not own. But this was not unusual in Bravos.
The mission to Bravos proved eventful in other ways as well. Lord Follard became enamoured of a Bravosi courtesan, and elected to remain close to her rather than return to Westeros. Sir Herman Rollingford was killed in a duel by a Bravo who took offence at the colour of his doublet, and Sir Dennis Hart supposedly engaged the services of the mysterious faceless men to kill a rival back in King's Landing, Mushroom asserts. The fool himself so amused the Sea Lord that he received a handsome offer to remain in Bravos. I do confess that I was tempted. In Westeros my wit is wasted capering for a king who never smiles, but in Bravos they would love me. Too well, I fear. Every courtesan would want me, and soon or late some bravo would take umbrage at the size of my member and prick me with his little pointy dwarf skewer. So back to the red keep mushroom scurried, and more fool me. So it came to pass that Lord Mouton returned to King's Landing with peace in hand, but at a grievous cost. The huge indemnity demanded by the sea lord so depleted the royal treasury that Lord Peak soon found it necessary to borrow from the iron bank of bravos just so the crown might pay its debts, and that in turn required him to reinstate certain of Lord Keltigar's taxes that Sir Tyland Lannister had abolished, which angered lords and merchants alike, and weakened his support amongst the small folk. The last half of the year proved calamitous in other ways as well. The court rejoiced when Lady Rayner announced that she was with child by Lord Corbray, but joy turned to grief a moon's turn later when she miscarried. Widespread famine was reported in the north, and the winter fever descended on Barrowton, the first time it had ever travelled so far inland. A raider named Silas the Grim led three thousand wildlings against the war, overwhelming the Black Brothers at Queensgate and spreading out across the gift until Lord Cregan Stark rode forth from Winterfell, joined with the Glovers of Deepwood Mott, the Flints and Norries of the Hills, and a hundred rangers from the Night's Watch, to hunt them down and put an end to them. A thousand leagues to the south, Sir Stephen Connington was hunting too, pursuing a small band of Dornish raiders across the windswept marches. But he rode too far and too fast, ignorant of what lay ahead, until one-armed Wyland Will came down on him and Lady Elenda found herself widowed once again. In the west, Lady Joanna Lannister hoped to follow her victory at Case by striking another blow against the Red Kraken. Assembling a ragtag fleet of fishing boats and cogs beneath the walls of feast fires, she loaded a hundred knights and three thousand men-at-arms aboard and sent them out to sea under the cover of darkness to retake Fair Isle from the Iron Man. The plan was to land them undetected on the south end of the island, but someone had betrayed them and the longships were waiting. Lord Prester, Lord Tarbeck, and Sir Erwin Lannister commanded the ill-fated crossing, Dalton Greyjoy sent their heads to Casterly Rock afterward, calling it payment for my uncle, though in truth he was a glutton and a drunkard and the islands are well rid of him. Yet all these were as naught against the tragedy that descended on the court and king. On the twenty-second day of the ninth moon of 133 AC, Jehera of House Targaryen, queen of the seven kingdoms and the last surviving child of King Aegon II, perished at the age of ten. The little queen died just as her mother, Queen Helena, had, throwing herself from a window in Magor's holdfast onto the iron spikes that lined the dry moat below. Impaled through breast and belly, she twisted in agony for half an hour before she could be lifted free, whereupon she passed from this life at once. King's Landing grieved. 
as only King's Landing could. Jehera had been a frightened child, and from the day she donned her crown, she had hidden herself away inside the Red Keep. Yet the small folk of the city remembered her wedding, and how brave and beautiful the little girl had seemed, and so they wept and wailed and tore their clothes and crowded into septs and taverns and brothels to seek for whatever solace they could find. There the whispers soon were flying, just as they had when Queen Helena died in similar fashion. Had the little queen truly taken her own life? Even inside the walls of the Red Keep, speculation was rampant. Jehera was a lonely child, prone to weeping and somewhat simple-minded, yet she had seemed content in her own chambers with her maids and ladies, her kittens and her dolls. What could have made her mad enough or sad enough to leap from her window onto those cruel spikes? Some suggested that Lady Rayner's miscarriage might have made her so distraught she did not wish to live. Others, of a more cynical bent, countered that it might have been jealousy over the child growing inside of Lady Bela that drove her to the act. It was the king, whispered still others. She loved him with all her heart, yet he paid her no mind, showed her no affection, did not even share his rooms with her. And, of course, there were many who refused to believe that Jehera had taken her own life. She was murdered, they whispered, just as her mother was. But if that were true, who was the murderer? There was no lack of suspects. By tradition, there was always a knight of the king's guard posted at the queen's door. It would have been a simple thing for him to slip inside and throw the child from her window. If so, surely the king himself had given the command. Aegon had tired of her weeping and wailing and wanted a new wife, men said, or perhaps he wished to revenge himself on the daughter of the king who killed his mother. The boy was dour and gloomy. No one truly knew his nature. Tales of Magor the Cruel were freely told. Others blamed one of the little queen's companions, Lady Cassandra Baratheon. The eldest of the four storms, Lady Cassandra had been briefly betrothed to King Aegon II during the last year of his life, and possibly to his brother Aemond One-Eye before that. Disappointment had turned her sour, her detractors said. Once her father's heir at Storm's End, she found herself of little account in King's Landing, and bitterly resented having to care for the weepy, feeble-witted child queen whom she blamed for all her woes. One of the queen's bedmaids also came under suspicion when it was found that she had stolen two of Jehera's dolls and a pearl necklace. A serving boy who had spilled soup on the little queen the year before and been beaten for it was accused. Both of these were put to question by the Lord Confessor and finally declared innocent, though the boy died under questioning and the girl lost a hand for theft. Even holy servants of the Seven were not above suspicion. A certain scepter in the city had once been heard to say that the little queen ought never to have children, for simple-minded women produced simple-minded sons. The gold cloaks brought her in as well, and she vanished into a dungeon. Grief makes men mad. With hindsight, we can say for a fair certainty that none of these played any role in the sad death of the little queen. If indeed Jehera Targaryen was murdered, and there is no shred of proof of that, it was surely done at the behest of the only truly plausible culprit, Unwin Peak, Lord Regent, Lord of Starpike, Lord of Dunstanbury, Lord of Whitegrove, Protector of the Realm, and hand of the king. Lord Peake was known to have shared his predecessor's concerns about the succession. Aegon III had no children, 
nor any living siblings, so far as it was known, and any man with eyes could see that the king was not like to get an heir from his little queen. Unless he did, the king's half-sisters remained his nearest kin, but Lord Peak was not about to allow a woman to ascend the Iron Throne, after having so recently fought and bled to prevent that very thing. If either of the twins produced a son, to be sure the boy would at once become first in the order of succession, but Lady Rayner's pregnancy had ended in miscarriage, which left only the child growing inside Lady Baylor on Driftmark. The thought that the crown might pass to the whelp of a wanton and a bastard was more than Lord Unwin Peake was prepared to stomach. Were the king to sire an heir of his own body, that calamity might be averted. But before that could happen, Jehera had to be removed so Aegon could remarry. Lord Peake could not have pushed the child from the window himself, to be sure, as he was elsewhere in the city when she died. But the king's guard, posted at the queen's door that night, was Mervyn Flowers, his bastard brother. Could he have been the hand's cat's paw? It is more than possible, particularly in light of later events, which we shall discuss in due course. Bastard born himself, Sir Mervyn was regarded by most a dutiful, if not especially heroic, member of the King's Guard. Neither champion nor hero, but a seasoned soldier and a fair hand with a long sword. A leal man who did as he was told. Not all men are as they seem, however, particularly in King's Landing. Those who knew Flowers best saw other sides of him. When not on duty, he was fond of wine, says Mushroom, who was known to have drunk with him. Though sworn to chastity, he seldom slept alone save in his cell at White Sword Tower. Despite being somewhat ill-favoured, he had a rough charm that washerwomen and serving girls responded to, and when in his cups he would even boast of having bedded certain high-born ladies. Like many bastards, he was hot of blood and quick to anger, seeing slights where none had been intended. Yet none of this suggested that Flowers was the sort of monster who could take a sleeping child from her bed and throw her to a grisly death. Even Mushroom, ever ready to think the worst of everyone, says as much. If Sir Mervyn had killed the Queen, he would have done it with a pillow, the fool insists, before suggesting a far more sinister and likely possibility. Flowers would never have pushed the Queen out that window, the dwarf claims, but he might well have stood aside to allow someone else to enter her room if that someone were known to him. Someone, mayhaps, like Tessario the Thumb, or one of the Fingers. Nor would Flowers have felt the need to ask their business with the little queen, not if they said they came at the hand's behest. So says the fool, but to be sure, all of this is fancy. The true tale of how Jehera Targaryen met her end will never be known. Mayhaps she did take her own life in some fit of childish despair. If murder was indeed the cause of her demise, however, for all these reasons, the man behind it could only have been Lord Unwin Peake. Yet without proof, none of this would have been damning, if not for what the hand did afterward. Seven days after the body of the little queen was consigned to the flames, Lord Unwin paid a call upon the grieving king, accompanied by Grand Maester Munken, Septon Bernard, and Marston Waters of the Kingsguard. They had come to inform his grace that he must put aside his mourning blacks and wed again, for the good of the realm. Moreover, his new queen had been chosen for him. Unwin Peake had married thrice and sired seven children. Only one survived. 
His firstborn son had died in infancy, as had both of his daughters by his second wife. His eldest daughter had lived long enough to marry, only to die in childbirth at the age of twelve. His second son had been fostered on the arbor, where he served Lord Redwine as page and squire, but at the age of twelve he had drowned in a sailing mishap. Sir Titus, heir to Starpike, was the only one of Lord Unwin's sons to grow to manhood. Knighted for valor after the Battle of the Honeywine by bold John Roxton, he had died only six days later, in a meaningless skirmish, with a band of broken men he stumbled on whilst scouting. The hand's last surviving child was a daughter, Miriel. Miriel Peake was to be Aegon III's new queen. She was the ideal choice, the hand declared, the same age as the king, a lovely girl and courteous, born of one of the noblest houses in the realm, schooled by scepters to read, write, and do sums. Her lady mother had been fertile, so there was no reason to think that Miriel would not give his grace strong sons. What if I do not like her? King Aegon said. You do not need to like her, Lord Peak replied. You need only wed her, bed her, and father a son on her. Then, infamously, he added, Your grace does not like turnips, but when your cooks prepare them, you eat them, do you not? King Aegon nodded sullenly, but the tale got out, as such tales always do, and the unfortunate Lady Miriel was soon known as Lady Turnips throughout the Seven Kingdoms. She would never be Queen Turnips. Unwin Peak had overreached himself. Thaddeus Rowan and Manfred Mouton were outraged that he had not seen fit to consult them. Matters of such import rightly belonged to the Council of Regents. Lady Arryn sent a waspish note from the Vale. Comet Tully declared the betrothal presumptuous. Ben Blackwood questioned the haste of it. Aegon should have been allowed half a year at least to mourn his little queen. A curt missive arrived from Cregan Stark in Winterfell, suggesting that the North might look with disfavor on such a match. Even Grand Maester Munken began to waver. Lady Meriel is a delightful girl, and I have no doubt that she would make a splendid queen, he told the Hand. But we must be concerned with appearances, my lord. We who have the honor of serving with your lordship know that you love his grace as if he were your own son, and do all you do for him and for the realm. But others may imply that you chose your daughter for more ignoble reasons, for power, or the glory of House Peak. Mushroom, our wise fool, observes that there are certain doors best not opened, for you never know what might come through. Peak had opened a queen's door for his daughter, but other lords had daughters too, as well as sisters, nieces, cousins, and even the odd widowed mother or maiden aunt and before the door could close they all came pushing through, insisting that their own blood would make a better royal consort than Lady Turnips. To recount all the names put forward would take more pages than we have, but a few are worthy of mention. At Casterly Rock, Lady Joanna Lannister set aside her war with the Iron Men long enough to write the hand and point out that her daughters, Serrell and Taishara, were maidens of noble birth and marriageable age. The twice-widowed Lady of Storm's End, Elinda Baratheon, put forward her own daughters, Cassandra and Ellen. Cassandra had once been betrothed to Aegon II and was well prepared to serve as queen, she wrote. From White Harbor came a raven from Lord Torren, speaking of past marriage pacts between the dragon and the merman, broken by cruel chance, 
and suggesting that King Aegon might put things aright by taking a mandalay for his bride. Charis Footley, widow of Tumbleton, made so bold as to nominate herself. Perhaps the boldest letter came from the irrepressible Lady Samantha of Oldtown, who declared that her sister, Sansara, of House Tarly, is spirited and strong and has read more books than half the maesters in the Citadel, whilst her good sister Bethany, of House Hightower, was very beautiful with smooth soft skin and lustrous hair in the sweetest manner, though also lazy and somewhat stupid, truth be told, though some men seem to like that in a wife. She concluded by suggesting that perhaps King Aegon should marry both of them, one to rule beside him, as Queen Alisan did, King Jeheris, and one to bed and breed. And in the event that both of them were found wanting for whatever obscure reason, Lady Sam helpfully appended the names of thirty-one other nubile maidens from houses Hightower, Redwine, Tarly, Ambrose, Florent, Cobb, Costain, Beesbury, Varner, and Grimm, who might be suitable as queens. Mushroom adds that her ladyship ended with a cheeky postscript that said, I know some pretty boys as well, should his grace be so inclined, but I fear they could not give him airs. But none of the other chronicles mentioned this affrontery, and her ladyship's letter has been lost. In the face of so much tumult, Lord Unwin was forced to think again. Though he remained determined to wed his daughter Miriel to the king, he had to do so in a way that would not provoke the lords whose support he needed. Bowing to the inevitable, he mounted the iron throne and said, For the good of his people, his grace must take another wife, though no woman will ever replace our beloved Jehera in his heart. Many have been put forward for this honour, the fairest flowers of the realm. Whichever girl King Aegon weds shall be the Alessand to his Jeheris, the Jonquil to his Florian. She will sleep by his side, birth his children, share his labours, soothe his brow when he is sick, grow old with him. It is only fitting, therefore, that we allow the king himself to make this choice. On Maiden's Day we shall have a ball, the like of which King's Landing has not seen since the days of King Viserys. Let the maidens come from every corner of the seven kingdoms and present themselves before the king, that his grace may choose the one best suited to share his life and love. And so the word went out, and a great excitement took hold of the court and city and spread out across the realm. From the Dornish marches to the wall, doting fathers and proud mothers looked at their nubile daughters and wondered if she might be the one, and every high-born maid in Westeros began to primp and sew and curl her hair, thinking, why not me? I might be the queen. Yet even before Lord Unwin had ascended the Iron Throne, he had sent a raven to Starpike, summoning his daughter to the city. Though Maiden's Day was yet three moons away, his lordship wanted Miriel at court, in hopes that she might befriend and beguile the king, and thus be chosen on the night of the ball. That much is known. What follows now is rumour, for it was said that even as he awaited the arrival of his own daughter, Unwin Peake also set in motion sundry secret plots and plans designed to undermine, defame, distract, and besmirch those damsels he deemed his daughter's most likely rivals. The suggestion that Cassandra Baratheon had pushed the little queen to her death was heard again, and the misdeeds of certain other young maidens, real or imagined, became common gossip about court. Isabel Staunton's fondness for wine was bruited about, the tale of Eleanor Mass's deflowering was told and retold, 
Rosamond Darry was said to be concealing six nipples under her bodice, supposedly because her mother had lain with a dog. Lyra Hayford was accused of having smothered an infant brother in a fit of jealousy, and it was put about that the three Janes, Jane Smallwood, Jane Mooton, and Jane Merriweather, liked to dress in squire's garb and visit the brothels along the street of silk to kiss and fondle the women there as if the three of them were boys. All these calumnies reached the king's ears, some from Mushroom's own lips, for the fool confesses to having been paid handsomely to poison Aegon III against these maids and others. The dwarf was much in his grace's company following the death of Queen Jehera. Though his japes could not dispel the king's gloom, they delighted Gaemon Pale Hair, so Aegon oft summoned him for the boy's sake. In his testimony, Mushroom says Tessario the Thumb gave him a choice between silver or steel, and to my shame I bade him sheathe his dagger and seized that sweet fat purse. Nor were words the only means by which Lord Unwin sought to win his secret war for the king's heart, if the whispers can be believed. A groom was found abed with Tyshara Lannister not long after the ball had been announced. Though Lady Tyshara claimed the lad had climbed in her window uninvited, Grand Maester Munkin's examination revealed her maiden head was broken. Lucinda Penrose was set upon by outlaws whilst hawking along Blackwater Bay, not half a day's ride from the castle. Her hawk was killed, her horse was stolen, and one of the men held her down whilst another slit her nose open. Pretty Felena Stokeworth, a vivacious girl of eight who had sometimes played at dolls with the little queen, took a tumble down the serpentine steps and broke her leg, whilst Lady Buckler and both her daughters drowned when the boat that was carrying them across the black water foundered and sank. Some men began to talk of a maiden's day curse, whilst others, wiser in the ways of power, saw unseen hands at work and held their tongues. Were the hand and his minions responsible for these tragedies and misfortunes, or were they happenstance? In the end it would not matter, not since the reign of King Viserys had there been a ball of any sort in King's Landing, and this would be a ball like none other. At tourneys, fair maidens and high ladies vied for the honour of being named the Queen of Love and Beauty, but such reigns lasted only for a night. Whichever maid King Aegon chose would reign over Westeros for a lifetime. The highborn descended on King's Landing from keeps and castles in every part of the Seven Kingdoms. In an effort to limit their numbers, Lord Peak decreed that the contest would be limited to maidens of noble blood under thirty years of age. Yet even so, more than a thousand nubile girls crowded into the Red Keep on the appointed day, a tide far too great for the hand to stem. Even from across the sea they came. The Prince of Pentos sent a daughter, the Archon of Tyrosh a sister, and the daughters of ancient houses set sail from Mir and even old Volantis, though, sadly, none of the Volantine girls ever arrived at King's Landing, being carried off by corsairs from the Basilisk Isles on the way. Each maid seemed lovelier than the last, Mushroom says in his testimony, Sparkling and spinning in their silks and jewels, they made a dazzling sight as they made their way to the throne room. It would be hard to picture anything more beautiful, unless perhaps all of them had arrived naked. One did, for all intents and purposes. Myrmidora Hayne, daughter of a magister of Lys, turned up in a gown of translucent blue-green silk that matched her eyes, with only a jeweled girdle underneath. Her appearance sent a ripple of shock 
through the yard, but the king's guard barred her from the hall until she changed into less revealing garb. No doubt these maidens dreamed sweet dreams of dancing with the king, charming him with their wit, exchanging coy glances over a cup of wine. But there was to be no dancing, no wine, no opportunity for conversation, be it witty or dull. The gathering was not truly a ball in the ordinary sense. King Aegon III sat atop the Iron Throne, clad in black, with a golden circlet round his head and a gold chain at his throat, as the maidens paraded beneath him, one by one. As the king's herald announced the name and lineage of each candidate, the girl would curtsy, the king would nod down at them, and then it would be time for the next girl to be presented. By the time the tenth girl was presented, the king had doubtless forgotten the first five, Mushroom says. Their fathers could well have sneaked them back into the queue for another go-round, and some of the more cunning likely did. A handful of the braver maidens made so bold as to address the king in an attempt to make themselves more memorable. Ellen Baratheon asked his grace if he liked her gown. Her sister later put it about that her question was, do you like my breasts? But there is no truth to that. Alyssa Royce told him she had come all the way from Runestone to be with him today. Patricia Redwine went her one better by declaring that her party had travelled from the arbour and had thrice been forced to beat back attacks by outlaws. I shot one with an arrow, she declared proudly. In the arse. Lady Anya Weatherwax, aged seven, informed his grace that her horse's name was Twinklehoof, and she loved him very much, and asked if his grace had a good horse too. His grace has a hundred horses, Lord Unwin answered impatiently. Others ventured compliments about his city, his castle, and his clothes. A northern maid named Barbara Bolton, daughter of the Dreadfort, said, If you send me home, your grace, send me home with food, for the snows are deep and your people are starving. The boldest tongue belonged to a Dornish woman, Moriah Corgyle of Sandstone, who rose from her curtsy, smiling, and said, Your grace, why not climb down from there and kiss me? Aegon did not answer her. He answered none of them. He gave each maid a nod to acknowledge that he had heard them. Then Sir Marston and the King's Guard saw them on their way. Music wafted over the hall all through the night, but could scarce be heard over the shuffle of footsteps, the din of conversation, and from time to time the faint, soft sound of weeping. The throne room of the Red Keep is a cavernous chamber, larger than any hall in Westeros save Black Herons but with more than a thousand maids on hand, each with her own retinue of parents, siblings, guards, and servants, it soon became too crowded to move and suffocatingly hot, though outside a winter wind was blowing. The herald charged with announcing the name and lineage of each of the fair maidens lost his voice and had to be replaced. Four of the hopefuls fainted along with a dozen mothers, several fathers, and a septon. One stout lord collapsed and died. The Maiden's Day Cattle Show, Mushroom would name the ball afterward. Even the singers who had made so much of it beforehand found little to sing about as the event unfolded, and the king himself appeared ever more restless as the hours passed and the parade of maids continued. All this, says Mushroom, was just as the hand desired. Each time his grace frowned, shifted in his seat, or gave another weary nod, the likelihood of his choosing Lady Turnips increased, Lord Unwin reasoned. Marielle Peak had arrived in King's Landing almost a moon's turn before the ball, and her father had made certain that she spent part of every day in the King's company. Brown of hair and eye, 
with a broad freckled face and crooked teeth that made her shy with her smiles, Lady Turnips was four and ten, one year older than Aegon. She was no great beauty, Mushroom says, but she was fresh and pretty and pleasant, and his grace did not seem averse to her. During the fortnight leading up to Maiden's Day, the dwarf tells us, Lord Unwin had arranged for Miriam.